My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our scripture reading for this week comes from the book of Nehemiah. We're reading selections from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, 5 through 6, and 8 through 10. Hear these words from Nehemiah. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate, and they told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all of the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so the people could understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go away, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, Have you all... Have y'all ever been in the middle of a particularly funny or weird or bizarre situation and before it's even ended, you're already thinking about how you're going to tell the story later to your spouse, your best friend or something. Like It's not even over yet, but you already imagined yourself, oh, when I, when I tell so-and-so about how this went down, they're just going to lose it. Uh, that happened to me recently. Some of you have already heard this story, but it's the story of the Ray Family Christmas 2021 when Becca and I, just a few weeks ago, went to spend a little over a week with her family, uh, the Rays, in their house near Atlanta. And it was, it was great to spend some time with family. Unfortunately, the cute little grandson, Silas, that everyone was just so excited to see, decided to give us all the stomach flu for Christmas. His parents think that he picked it up from daycare right before they flew across the country from Colorado. And it was, it was a bad bug. 24 hours of gastrointestinal distress that I cannot describe in more detail in the form of a sermon, unfortunately. There were, or fortunately, actually. There were 10 of us in the house, and it was systematically working its way through us all. But by day four, six or seven people had gotten the bug, but I had not. And as we passed the midpoint of the week, I started to let myself hope that I never would. And I I really wanted to survive. I wanted to be the one person who avoided getting the illness, not only because I didn't want to throw up for 24 hours, obviously, but because I knew that it was going to make a better story. It would give the story a hero and a triumphant ending, right? Like, uh, imagine this story. We went to the Ray's house over Christmas. Every single one of us got violently ill. The end. That's just a sad story, right? But listen to this story. Okay. So I went to stay with my in-laws for the week after Christmas. And suddenly people started dropping like flies. A highly contagious stomach flu was stalking each and every one of us, claiming a couple, a couple victims every day like a soap opera serial killer. On day one, 
Rachel and Jeff succumbed. On day two, Meg and Daniel never came downstairs for breakfast. On the evening of day three, my own wife looked at me with a pained expression on her face, and I knew that I was going to have to sleep on the couch that night. By day five, everyone had taken their turns with the buckets and the frantic sprints to the bathroom, except for me. I was the lone survivor. And as the holiday drew to a close, I could feel the hope of the entire house settle upon me, the hope that somebody, one of us, would make it out unscathed. Every time my stomach growled, the entire room would look at me with one concerned eyebrow raised, wondering if the Silas flu was about to claim another victim. But it never did. I made it. And as we drove back to Grifton, I gave thanks to God and, ponder, and pondered what I had done to deserve such grace. The end. That's a way better story, right? It's got a better arc. There's a better shape to it. There's a hero. There's something to hope for. There's a triumphant ending. The story of the Ray family Christmas 2021 is no longer the tragedy. Everybody got the stomach flu. Now it's a survivor hero narrative. Everybody got the stomach flu, except by the grace of God and a strict regimen of vitamin C, Caleb Punt, the lone survivor. It's just so much better. The way that we tell stories, or more precisely, the kind of stories that we decide to tell about our own lives, they're actually very, very important. The way that we narrate our experiences. Was the Ray family Christmas a tragedy or a hero survivor tale? It affects our memories. It affects our character, our actions, our mental and spiritual health. This has been shown over and over again in the realm of psychology and counseling. Uh, for instance, in the therapy profession, the terms contagion narrative and redemption narrative get thrown around a lot. They refer to how someone tends to tell a story about a difficult experience to their therapist, for, for example. Um, like say somebody is talking to their therapist about a particularly difficult time in their life. Let's say they got fired from their very first job after they got out of college. And if the person tends to have a contagion narrative, they might tell the story like this. Yeah, I just got fired from my first ever job, and I, I don't think I'm ever going to get my confidence back. Every time that I ever interview, I'm going to be thinking, they're not going to like you. This is not going to last. I have not really, and I don't think I'm going to get over this. That's contagion narrative. The story that the person has adopted to describe the experience is the story of an illness that spread and spread and spread and then ruined everything. If the person tells a redemptive story, it might sound more like this. Yeah, I got fired from my first ever job, and when I think about it, it made sense in some ways. I wasn't really prepared for that position. I was lacking some maturity, but I decided, and I decided to use that experience to take stock of myself and to improve myself. I'm going to go back to school for a few more classes. I'm going to learn from some really good mentors, and I think that I am going to end up even more confident and more capable than I was back then. That is a redemptive arc, right? It's the story shape that ends with, and I'm better off for having gone through it. In the context of a therapy session, the counselor might try to identify the less healthy narrative arcs, like a contagion narrative that the patient is constantly defaulting to, and help, and help the person find ways to give the experience a, a different story, a better story, maybe even a, some kind of redemption story. And people who can re-narrate events, who can choose to give uh, something, a redemption arc rather than a contagion arc. They tend to be healthier and more resilient individuals because the way that we talk about our lives, the stories that we allow to give meaning and significance to our lives matter. They matter a lot. Our scripture reading for today, uh, the Old Testament reading from the Revised Common Lectionary for this, for this day, it's from the book of Nehemiah, and it describes a public reading of scripture. Have any of y'all ever seen a public reading of scripture? I've seen them once or twice, I think like on a state capitol building or something. Normally it's just some guy or, or woman behind a podium reading Genesis on the concrete steps. I find them inspiring in a strange way, so I'll normally stop to listen for a few minutes, but normally, you know, he or she is reading to nobody. Uh, this public reading of scripture, though, in Nehemiah, it was very well attended. Everybody was there and they were listening as closely as they possibly could. It was a huge, huge deal. 
And to understand why this was such a, good, a big deal, we need a, a little bit of historical context. We need to know who these people were that were gathered to hear the scriptures, what kind of mindset that they were in. Um, I tell the story of the exile quite a bit here at Grifton, uh, the story of how the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, turned their back on God, and then how God allowed them to fall to the surrounding powers of Assyria and Babylon, be dragged away from their homelands to live in subjugation. Uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they tell the next phase in that story. Several generations after the Israelites were conquered and their religious texts were destroyed, their temple was pulled down. Several generations later, the most powerful ruler of the time, King Cyrus of Persia, Assyria and Babylon had uh, gone the way of all nations of the world at this point, and Persia had, had come to power. Cyrus decides to allow the Jews living in his, in his land that he inherited, so to speak, to go back home to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild it and to live in the land of their ancestors. And this was incredibly good news, amazing news. Everybody was extremely excited. And so a few Israelite leaders like Nehemiah and the priest Ezra, they gathered together a group of exiles to go home and to rebuild Jerusalem back to its former glory. At the point of our story for today, by the time Ezra is getting ready to read the scriptures to this group, these former exiles, now settlers, have been back in the land of Israel for about 60 years. And it has been a brutally disappointing 60 years. They came with such high hopes, right? They were going to rebuild the city walls and rebuild the temple. They were going to rediscover the faith and the piety of their forefathers. They're going to become a healthy community again. None of that has happened. They have been fighting amongst themselves and the surrounding tribes the entire time. The temple they rebuilt was just lame. It made them mourn over the glory of the old temple. Everything remained in shambles, and it was unclear what they were even trying to accomplish at this point. But then Ezra, their leader, found the scroll of the Law of Moses, which probably would have been the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that is often referred to in shorthand as the Torah or the Law. And to say that he found it implies that it was lost, right? Which it was. Remember, this is a group of former exiles turned settlers. They haven't had access to the text and the traditions of their ancestors for generations and generations at this point. Uh, sure, you know, they probably passed down stories, stories of, of God coming to Abraham, something about a Red Sea, some really pretty poems about a guy named David. But these were piecemeal. They were incomplete. This group of people had not heard the scriptures treasured by those that came before them for years and years and years and years at this point. So the discovery of the scroll of the law of Moses was huge. What is about to happen with this public reading of scripture, all of these downtrodden settlers gathered together to hear the scriptures of their ancestors, uh, they are about to hear and receive their story. They're about to be given their story. Because with the chaos of their lives in the last 100, 200 years, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know who they were, what they should be doing. They didn't know what kind of story they were playing out. Was this just a tragedy, a tragic story, a bunch of random misfortune and confusion leading nowhere? Is this a contagion narrative? The sins of, you know, Abraham and Jacob, our forefathers, they just spread and they spread and they ruined everything and Israel is just never going to be restored? Or is there some way to make sense of all of this? Is this heading somewhere? Who are we? What are we doing here? What kind of story is this? And so with these questions, they gather to hear the scriptures read aloud to them. And when they hear the law read to them, the text tells us that they weep violently. And then they throw a party, which is a strange reaction, right? Um, Well, I will tell you that the commentaries on this passage, they're in disagreement here. Some commentaries think that these tears were actually tears of joy. And that the Levites, the priests, who go out among the people and instruct them not to mourn, they've actually misread the situation. They've uh, misunderstood the tears for sadness when they really represent the overwhelming joy of the people of having been given their story and having heard the scriptures read aloud to them. 
But other commentators think that these tears are, are tears. They're tears of sorrow and dread, of sadness and guilt of some kind. And the Levites, they're trying to turn around what was supposed to be a day of a holy day of celebration. So take a minute to think, you know, look back at this text, Nehemiah 8. What, what do you think it is? Is it tears of sadness or is it tears of joy? Well, to, to try to answer this question, let's imagine what they would have heard. Let's think about the story that Ezra gave them. The text tells us they read from the book of the law of Moses, which again probably refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. What kind of story is that for these Israelite settlers to hear? On the one hand, it's easy to see why they might have been crying tears of joy, right? They would have heard Genesis 1 and learned that they and their ancestors were servants of an amazing God, the creator of heaven and earth, who have put the stars in the sky and who established the edges of the sea. They would have heard Genesis 12 and learned that they were God's chosen people. Out of all of the nations of the earth, God had come to their great, 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 etc. grandfather Abraham in order to bring about God's purposes in the world through Abraham and through his descendants. They would have heard the story of the Exodus, how God freed them from bondage and promised them a future. They were not just a sad group of refugees without hope, without a way forward. They were God's own bride whom he loved dearly. So it could have been tears of joy. But why might they have been crying tears of sadness? Well, they also would have heard the tale of the first murder in Genesis 4, Cain killing Abel, and thus illustrating the dire consequences of sin and brokenness in the world. They would have heard all about Israel's shortcomings, the way that they whined and doubted throughout their entire time in the desert, even though they had just been freed from slavery in Egypt. They would have heard all of the law codes of Moses, the rules and commands that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, instructing these people how to be a society that honored God, that lived in peace with one another, and that looked out for the poor and the needy among them. And then they would have looked around, and they would have realized they weren't doing any of those things, that they had, that they had seemingly failed. Could have been tears of guilt and sadness. In the Catholic tradition, the Catholic faith, this Sunday, today, is known as Word of the Lord Sunday. And there is one Catholic church in Louisiana called St. Martin's Catholic Church that was founded all the way back in 1765. In order to mark this occasion, St. Martin's always reads the entire Bible out loud and in public from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning. It takes about 100 hours, and they use about 200 different readers. I want you to imagine, we're going to do a little thought experiment here. Imagine that you were there at St. Martin's, and you listen to the entire thing. Now, you're also going to have to imagine that you had like a superhuman attention span and no bodily needs so that you could understand and absorb it all at once. Basically, I want you to imagine that you heard and understood the entire Bible in one sitting, Genesis to Revelations. In other words, imagine that you were given your story in its entirety all at once. You might cry tears of joy. Like Israel, you would it be reminded that you were created in the image of an all-powerful God and thereby endowed with infinite worth? You would hear about the unbelievable love that the God has towards you, who's willing to pursue you no matter how far that you've wandered. And, and you know, unlike Israel, you would be privileged to hear about our incredible Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save the lost. You'd hear about the first Easter morning, how Jesus conquered death and thereby offered us a way out of fear and that everything, uh, out, outside of the fear that everything ends with our own heartbeat. You hear about the end of days, the moment that God returns in power and glory and will make all things new. And in some ways, you know, part of me wishes I could just conclude the sermon right there and tell you that if you pick the story of the Bible, the Christian story, if you pick the story of the creator God and his son, Jesus Christ, to shape your life, to give it meaning, coherence, I wish that I could tell you that you'll just be happy all of the time. 
And I think that as a preacher, sometimes I actually lean in that direction. I feel so much more at ease in my, in my soul on a Sunday morning if I know that I, the basic message of my sermon is because of God and Jesus, everything's going to be okay. I love preaching those kinds of sermons uh, because you know, I care about y'all. I like y'all. And if given the opportunity, I'd rather make you feel happy and at peace rather than guilty and challenged. But the truth is that sometimes the Christian story is a, is a brutally convicting one. Because as you heard your entire story given to you all at once on the steps of St. Martin, you would also, like Israel, hear about the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of the human heart. And, you know, despite this brokenness, when you arrive at the New Testament, you'd also hear the highest, most stringent moral calling that anyone has ever devised in history. You'd be instructed to love not only your neighbor as yourself, but your enemies. You'd be told to pray for those that persecute you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other one. If anybody wants your shirt, give them your coat as well. And like the Israelites, you might look around and realize, we're not doing any of that. And you might be reminded that though Jesus is the forgiver of sins, he's not content to leave you where you are, but insists on forming us into a more and more perfect image of himself. You'd hear the story of the cross. You'd hear Jesus' cries as he takes the punishment that should have been ours, as he takes the sin of the world, our sin upon his shoulders. You might shed some Good Friday tears as well. Homework two weeks in a row. Back-to-back weeks, which makes sense because we're, you know, we've got snow days. You've got plenty of time on your hands. Um, and this, this little homework piece, you can get started right here, right now. I want you to think of a big, thorny, difficult experience that you have had in your life. could be something recent that's happening right now, or it might be something in the distant past. Just make sure it's something big, something that sent ripples throughout the rest of your life. And I'm wondering, what stories do you tell yourself or do you tell other people about that experience? How do you narrate that event? When you, account, when you recount that experience to other people, do you tend to tell a contagion narrative? A really close and trusted friend betrayed me, and I really have never been able to trust anyone ever since. Do you give it a redemptive spin? Yes, it was hard, but I learned, I grew, and I overcame. Then I want you to think about what it might mean to allow the Bible, the Christian story, the story of a good and loving God who loves you and wants to draw you to himself. What would it look like to allow that story to shape and inform and give meaning to this big thorny experience. It won't be nearly as simple as just giving it a contagion arc or redemption arc. Either it ruined everything or I came out stronger than before. Because the Christian story, it's just, it's not that simple. It's more complex. It's all, it's all encompassing, right? It describes a whole way of viewing and thinking about reality in the world. This could just still be a mostly joyful practice, right? Maybe you will just be reminded of God's eternal unflagging love for you, and you'll be reminded that God is making all things new, that he puts relationships back together, that he rights wrongs, that he raises the dead. Maybe allowing the story of the Bible to narrate the experience for you will only bring you comfort and happiness. And honestly, I hope that's how this exercise plays out for you. But it might not, right? This could be a very difficult thing to do. You might have to wrestle with your own culpability, in the situation, the way that you fell short, your own lack of faith. You might have to acknowledge the areas that you failed to answer the call, that you fell short of the example given to us by Jesus Christ. Tears of joy, tears of sadness, both both are possible here. But I want you to try it anyway, because as Christians, we believe that this is a good story, a a right story, It's, it's true. And then here's the most important part. I want you to try it anyway, because we trust the author of this story. We trust God to write the ending, to bring our joy to its completion, and to use any sense of conviction that we have, any sense of falling short. We trust him to use it for our good, for his continually redemptive purposes. 
So I want you to try to allow the story of a good and gracious God redeeming the world to himself. Allow it to narrate this experience for you and change how you think about it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.